before we get started on this episode, I wanted to let you know about This Thing of Darkness, Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible in Stalin's Russia, by Dr. Joan Neuberger, which has been shortlisted for the 2020 Pushkin House Book Prize. The book combines an in-depth production history with an extremely close reading of parts one and two of the film itself, and Dr. Neuberger argues that, at least in the case of part one, Eisenstein succeeded in creating a depiction of the first Tsar that ostensibly lined up with Stalin's requirements, but that nevertheless subtly critiqued tyrannical abuses of power. I haven't managed to get my hands on a copy yet, but I've heard several interviews with Joe Newberger on other podcasts, all of which were absolutely fascinating, and so this is very much on my wish list now. This Thing of Darkness is published by Cornell University Press and is available from your nearest independent bookshop or wherever you get your books. I've put a link to the book in the show notes, as well as a link to those podcast episodes I just mentioned. Okay, so now I've let you know about that. On with the show. This is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I am joined by a guest, and today my guest is Essie. Hi, Essie. Hi. Thanks for coming along and being on the podcast. Now, before we get into the discussion of what film we're going to watch, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name's Essie, like Ali said, and I have a degree, a bachelor's and master's in film studies. I love watching historical films, predominantly Hollywood, um, but I really do like world cinema as well. So uh, when Ali approached me to be on this podcast, I was raring to go um, to learn a little bit more about Eisenstein's films. Yeah, so I have heard that when you go to film school or do a degree in film, Eisenstein is pretty much like a mandatory person whose work you have to watch, almost to the point that people go, oh no, please, not more Battleship Potomkin. Um, does that reflect your experience? I mean, I think it was about a month into me first being at uni that we watched Battleship Potomkin. It was like our fourth lecture or something um, on basic film form. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was pretty early on and, and that was in like, module that you had to do um so they pretty much made everybody watch battleship potemkin and write an essay on montage theory 
Yeah, I mean, how did you how did you get on with uh, with the film? Because you also watched uh, Strike as well. Like, how did you enjoy them as films? Um, I mean, they're they definitely have a really raw kind of quality to them because it's so close to his heart what he's um kind of making the film about it's not just a willy-nilly story he's really trying to make a point with it so in some places they're actually quite uncomfortable to watch but it makes them entertaining for a different reason because you uh you kind of see where his heart is almost in what he's trying to portray i can imagine it would be quite a different thing to watch them like in 1925 when Battleship Temkin came out uh, because obviously all of the uh, revolution stuff was really quite fresh um, so it's, it's interesting watching them from our perspective now um, what I really like is is seeing how um, Hollywood movies mirror what he did um, so in The Godfather there's a really interesting uh, montage sequence of um, Michael's nephew getting baptised and it's kind of cross-cut with his first um, kind of set up for murder. He's like he's like sent somebody out to murder loads of people and it's kind of, you know, a, a kind of intellectual montage telling people that he's been baptised into the world of crime um, and that's a really telling thing of what... Eisenstein did. Yeah, and it's also incredibly jarring because on the one hand, you know, he's being part of this Christian religious ceremony, you know, with all of the, you know, ideals and whatever connected with that. And then his goons are going out and murdering people. It's, you know, it's quite a, um, yeah, quite a jarring, jarring thing. I mean, I was just having a quick look on... um, (laughs) <laughs> Wikipedia before we got going and um, yeah Eisenstein had like a bunch of different types of mon- montage that he did didn't he and, and you mentioned intellectual montage yeah so for the non-film criticy, film schooly people such as myself what is intellectual montage intellectual montage is basically where you put juxtaposing images next to each other to make a point and it's almost like teasing the intellectual part of the viewer's brain really and kind of getting them to marry up the two things to make a a point on in Eisenstein's case it was something social communism good <laughs> yeah. capitalism less good <laughs> exactly so it's it's that kind of teasing that intellectual part of the viewer's brain out by making a point on something it's different you would you would kind of oppose it to emotional montage so emotional montage is if you had a two lovers and they had their first kiss and then there was a montage of all of the moments that they'd had together before this kiss that that would be an emotional montage Mm. um kind of being very linear in time um and being very kind of reflective of what the characters emotions are as well it kind of brings you into their emotions whereas intellectual montage is almost non-diegetical in that way and non-diegetical means kind of outside of the film world right right yeah i've heard the heard the term used in in the context of of music yeah like diegetical being it's music that the characters can hear as opposed to you know the john williams like and Jenna Jones looks over his shoulder and goes, "Where's where's the where's the horn section?" <laughs> That's exactly uh, it. Yeah, um, cool. Yes. So it's always get, good to get a bit of uh, film theory in for 
people people like me who just like <laughs> like watching films that have never like formally studied them. Cool. So um, the film we're watching today is not Battleship Potomkin or Strike. It's a much later film. It is Ivan Grozny, to give it his Russian title, or Ivan the Terrible, as he'll be more familiar to people in the English-speaking world. So, yeah, so it's it's like a historical bi- biopic, and it was shot in the early 1940s, so pretty much bang in the middle of, of World War II. Mm. So, do, do you know anything about Ivan the Terrible? I know that he was the fourth Tsar of Russia. Is that right? Um, well, I may get this wrong. I think he was actually the first Russian ruler to have himself crowned as Tsar. Like um. before that, they'd had a grand prince, and I think like some of the some of his predecessors were referred to like in documents and things as. Tsar, but no, nobody went through like the formal correlation. This is at the point where Russian listeners should write in and <laughs> correct me if I if I'm wrong. But I'm pretty sure he was the first one to to take that name. Uh, the fourth part is um, is he was actually Ivan the Fourth in terms of like I... Russian rulers called Ivan, <laughs> and I think his grandfather was Ivan the Third. We've actually covered uh, him. In, in, in other films we've done on the, on the podcast already, we did a very early episode on like a 2009 film just called Tsar, which is really good, but also very brutal. So I'm imagining this probably isn't going to be quite as intense as that. And another one called Ivan Vasilievich Changes Professions, which is like a time travel comedy where it's it was like made in the early 1970s and... A scientist develops a time machine and then accidentally goes back to the time of Ivan the Terrible um, and then transports him to the then present day. So wow. it's, yeah, it's kind of like, like, lay visitors before, before like, you know, 20 years before that was made or whenever. You know, if you've ever seen the French film, The, yeah. uh, the Visitors, I think there was an English language remake. I don't know if you ever saw that with Jean Reno. Um in one of his, you know, more comedic roles, where he's not, you know, just like a hitman or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, it's going to be interesting for me seeing like a uh, like another different treatment of of that particular historical character. But in terms of like sort of what to expect, he's kind of like the Russian Tsar equivalent of Henry VIII in terms of like. That's a very rough approximation, but he was married even more times than Henry, I think. He was very, like, domineering. I mean, it's, it's a very rough parallel, but that's sort of, like, the idea you should yeah. have in your head. And he was roughly contemporary as well. I mean, he was slightly later. Uh, he was ruling Russia around the time of uh, Elizabeth I and, I think, her immediate predecessors, Edward and Mary. So that's sort of the time period you should oh, be thinking. Okay. Cool. Eisenstein actually made two uh, films from the life of Ivan the Terrible, and there was plans for a third, but for the purpose of this podcast, we're just going to watch part one. So what we normally do at this point, Essie, is I get my guests to speak a little bit of Russian. Oh, great. Okay. (laughs) I should have warned you about this. I clearly failed in the pre-podcast briefing. Don't worry, though. It's only one word. It does have a few syllables. 
um, but the word is payechli. So what it means is off we go, and it's kind of a word that you encounter all the time, but it was made a bit more famous around the world because it's the thing that Yuri Gagarin said when he was blasting off become the first man in space. So it's kind of like, off we go. Okay, say it again. Payechli. Payechli. Awesome. Okay, <laughs> three, two, one. Payechli. We've just watched Ivan the Terrible Part 1, directed by Sergei Eisenstein. But before we get into what we thought about it, Essie is just going to give us a quick plot summary. So, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it and you don't want to know what happens, this is the time to pause the podcast and go find a copy of the film from somewhere. That said, over to you, Essie. Thanks. I'm going to apologise now for mispronouncing any of these names. Because unlike Ali, I do not speak Russian, nor do I have any idea of how to pronounce things um, in Russian at all. Um, <laughs> but the film kind of opens with Ivan or Ivan. Is that how you say it? Ivan? Ivan is the more Russian way, but like Ivan is, you know, everyone is, you know, in the West is going to typically call him Ivan the Terrible, because that's just what we've always traditionally said. So either or. Let's go with Ivan, and I can't believe I struggled on the first one that was Ivan. Wait till we get to the other characters. (laughs) Um, So we start the film with Ivan um, at his coronation, coronating himself, even with the crown, as Tsar, ruler of all of Russia. And we then see his wedding to Anastasia Romanov, or Romanov. And at this very exciting wedding, loads of peasants burst in. Uh, they're basically somehow not happy with the wedding or something. But Ivan basically wins them over in a... It's kind of like with the sheer force of his personality and his like majestical aura almost, isn't it? They're just He's just kind of like, you will obey me. He doesn't actually say that, but... Um, he just kind of goes, I am the Tsar, or something like that. And they just go, all right then. He's, he's kind of his presence. Like, he just stands there knowing who he is, almost. like, And then imposing that kind of subconsciously onto everyone around him. It's kind of a, a fear, but also an awe. I yeah. think that kind of shuts yeah. them up. And I think he then, he gets them all really rallied to go to war, basically, to capture... Kazan, which is in the east, I understand. Yes, yeah. Um, and then they're all like raring to go and fight with their Tsar. And, and when they get to the battle, they they win it. They capture um, Kazan and Kazan surrenders. But then Ivan gets almost to the point of death on the way back. And he, everyone thinks he's dead. He has this very dramatic fall where we're like, okay, he's dead, you know, this could be the end of the movie almost, like it was that final, wasn't it? So while he's kind of lying on the bed, assumed dead, all of the boyars or, excuse me, nobles are deciding whether they're going to pledge allegiance to his son. Oh no, he is alive at this point. He is alive, sorry. 
he he's trying to persuade them that they need to to like kiss the cross in favor of yes before his son. he dies because he thinks or, he's gonna die yeah yes everyone sorry. else is pretty convinced as well yes so it's before he dies and then this big dramatic fall happens and no one has pledged allegiance to him so he almost dies of grief and pushes him over the edge almost yeah and so they all walk out ready to crown uh prince vladimir who is a child who doesn't even really know what's going on yeah i mean he's i don't know he's probably like about 20 or something but he's i think one of the characters i think he may even be his mother says that he's like feeble-minded or something so he's a he's a grown man but he's not yeah, he'll, like, let the others around him rule him, almost. Yeah. He's that yeah. weak. Um, but when they're all ready to, to crown him, suddenly Ivan appears. I'm not dead. And just before this, his his kind of best friend has just pledged allegiance to his son, knowing that he was alive. So he kind of knew that he would gain power from it. Yeah, but he kind of went back and forth as to what he was going to do. Like, and so the friend is called Andrei Kubsky, and Vladimir, this like possibly puppet king or pu- puppet czar, if Ivan doesn't pull through, his mother is saying, Look, my son is not going to be ruling himself, so if you pledge allegiance to him, actually, you'll be the one who's in charge. So, you know, think about that. But as you say, Ultimately, Andre decides that he's going to side with Ivan if he pulls through, after all. Yes, and then Ivan hears this and is like, You're my one true friend, the only person that sided with me. You can now have command of my, I don't know, military front to the west. Since we've already won the east, you can go to the west and um, try and win over Livorna. Livonia, yeah. It's kind of like roughly equivalent of modern-day Latvia, that area. Where were we? So he's he's sent Kurbsky to war, and while he's away, all of the boyars or nobles kind of plot against Ivan and spread rumours almost, don't they? Turning people against him, turning the they're kind of equals against him and then they poison his wife which is not a nice thing to do yeah and vladimir's mother boyarina the boyarina so like the noble lady i guess that is staritskaya is pretty instrumental in that yeah she's the one who kind of administers the poison hmm she was skulking around for most of the film yeah (laughs) But yeah, so after this happens, he's obviously distraught. He feels like he's got no friends, no allies. Um, and he's almost at the point of giving up when um, his kind of two right-hand men almost, they are called, see if I can pronounce these, Basmanov and Maluta. Yep. Win. <laughs> um, they kind of almost convince him to kind of look beyond his his allies in Moscow and to look to the people and build up a new kind of support group. What do they call it? An iron circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They say that he should retreat from Moscow and but like appoint appoint men who 
aren't from the nobility, like commoners, like themselves to 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 be like his personal bodyguards or whatever. But yes, they do use that like iron circle thing a couple of times, and then at that point, Ivan says he's you know good idea. We'll retreat to this place outside of Moscow, and then I will summon the people to to my cause, and they kind of say, uh, you can't trust that rabble. And then he sort of says, you can't tell me what to do, I'm the Tsar. And then they kind of go, yeah, right, you are Tsar, let's do that. (laughs) And then, so he retreats, and then I guess the people go and find him, and then is that what was happening? Yeah, yeah, you just get this great long procession coming to meet him in, like, the uh, Alexandrov village. Is, is what they refer to it in the subtitles. And then, yeah, I guess he's he's there kind of feeling wanted, I guess, by the people and therefore gives him strength and it also shows how much power he has over them. And then he's like, okay, let's do this. Let's push our boundaries. Let's, let's unite. Or what does he say? Abolish all of the... Like patrimonial land, so basically like all the noble estates, and yeah, and I'll just give land to people who are loyal to the state. And thus concludeth the film. Part one, yeah, yeah. Excited to see part two, but I guess we should talk about this one first. (laughs) Yes, yes, yeah. So, to start with then, in the first part we talked about previous Eisenstein films that you'd seen... How did this compare? Was it very different? Could you, you know, if you didn't know, would you go, this is the same guy? Um, That's always a hard question to answer when you actually do know, but... It's it's tricky. I have to say it was very different to what I expected from an Eisenstein film because it almost felt a bit safe. It almost felt more narrative. His work is very... Um, well, what I've seen of his work, anyway, they're both films I've seen, Strike and Battleship, they were both in the 20s, made mm. in the 20s. This is obviously 20 years later, and then made in the 40s. And it, it just, it, yeah, I don't know, it felt quite safe, almost. Like, obviously, it was still very political in, in its nature, but there wasn't, there wasn't such an oppressive way about it or the way about the narrative it felt more relaxed to watch almost I guess because it's a historical account maybe it was a little bit tamer Mm. but I I would definitely recognize it was Eisenstein because of his extreme close-ups that I don't know if you noticed them they were just like eyes looking to the left or to the right, glaring or in awe or in fear. And he he does that a lot, this kind of extreme close-up to kind of show the people's real thoughts. Yeah. Almost what they can't express. I found the acting style, even though it was a talkie, obviously, because um, we're well into the talkie era at this point, the acting style seemed very silent film-esque in that it was quite it just wasn't naturalistic at all you know you have people doing these big sweeping gestures and like especially Ivan but kind of everyone you know throwing their head back and kind of taking these Mm. like dramatic like turns and you know staring and it's just like that's quite weird to watch when you're not used to seeing that yeah I kind of felt 
in some cases, I was waiting for an intertitle. Mm. Like, because there was, there was kind of a pause where people, people were holding a position almost to kind of wait to go into the intertitle. So I definitely felt that as well. It was kind of jarring, actually. Because there was no foley either. It was just the non-diegetic music composed by... Sergei Prokofiev. There you go. And the talking, there was no foley that needed to be there to make a point, Mm. like the cannons firing or when he stamps his foot to make everybody leave. But apart from that, there wasn't any, like, clinking at the banquet or anything. There was Mm. kind of... It was just the talking and the music predominantly. So when there was people just moving around on stage, it felt really silent. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite weird and there was but there was background music through most of it i felt like there wasn't a lot of silence scenes no no it was very and the music was very evocative i think yes yeah (laughs) you know when you get one of like the best russian composers of the 20th century Mm. on board yeah yeah i was very impressed with the with the music as well i think that's probably like one of the things about the film that stands up best i would Mm. say yeah i think so the script is it's very to the point there's no fluff which i guess in some cases is a good thing yeah and especially in kind of political historical dramas fluff isn't really fluff you know there's it everything's to the point because you're trying to prove a story or prove a point but yeah it was very kind of short and tight and the music brought out everything else all the emotions or everything um yeah but i think eisenstein only this film and well these two parts parts one and two and alexander nevsky yeah they were his only two talkies okay so all of his other films were silent so i guess he was very used to the way silent movies worked and i guess that's why he already had a really great composer yeah in terms of the uh, the politics side of things, because you mentioned you've mentioned that a few times, what did you think? What did you think he was he was getting at? Eisenstein. Yeah, I think I think I read somewhere that Stalin endorsed this film to be made. Oh yes, yeah. So I I kind of was watching it through that kind of lens. It was almost like this is this is a really rose tinted portrayal almost it was very Mm. let's put the people first and where the people follow me that's what's going to give me you know that's what's going to give me oomph to carry on um and it's interesting that stalin then stopped uh the release of the second one i'll be interested to see how the character develops in the second one to make stalin stop it when he was so interested in the first one. That will be a very good um, comparison, actually, um, when we do the second part. Yeah, I mean, I was... I've heard that Ivan the Terrible was Stalin's favourite Russian historical figure, and it kind of of shows with this. But, um, yeah, there definitely aren't any punches pulled about like the way the film depicts how a leader should behave. You know, there's there's one scene very very early on where Ivan's going, we should cut off heads without mercy. And it's kind of like, all right then. That's the, it's almost, it's almost kind of like, 
if you're the leader, you get to kill whoever you want because it's for the good of the state. And there's lots of, like, rhetoric like that. Um, and a lot of the film feels like the message is, and that's why we should support our great leader, Joseph uh, Ivan the Terrible, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, obviously, when you kind of know that context, it's very easy to read everything through that lens. <laughs> but, yeah, um, it's... It it's quite, yeah. It, I mean, I know you said it was it was it felt like quite safe compared to other, but just how much the film is kind of like behind the idea of like a strong man is the only way to go, and the strong man gets to do whatever he wants, mm. and everyone should get behind him. And there's so much about like rooting out and smashing the traitors and killing them all and it's just kind of like it's it's just quite shocking to see that on a film from that era and especially when that the film kind of like frames Evan as kind of being the hero and the person that people look up to mm. even though you know there is all this plotting going around him to me anyway I feel like Isis I wants you to be rooting for this guy Mm. It was kind of weird. <laughs> it felt odd that Eisenstein was rooting for kind of the the one leader to rule them all, almost, because all of his other films have all been about revolting against leadership and revolting against the the authority that um, commands the whole nation. I think it just felt a very different approach. It was almost like, yes, let's all support this, but I. I can completely see how Stalin's influence would have helped that. Maybe he decided to break free a bit in the in the second part. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't until 1958 that part two was actually released, although I think they were filmed pretty much concurrently. Um, and there was going to, as I mentioned in the first part, there was going to be a third part. And I, th- I think... Eisenstein died before they'd got all that far with it, and most of the footage like from it was was destroyed. But that's kind of like almost going off on a tangent. But mm. yeah, it will be interesting to see, as you say. It's also interesting that it wasn't released until after Stalin died as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of gave freedom back. <laughs> yeah, there was a period where things opened up for a while. Um, you know, not totally, but... Some bits. What did you feel like about the the style of of the visuals? How how much was that kind of different from what you'd seen before? Like I said, I was quite. It felt very much like an Eisenstein film in terms of its very extreme close ups to kind of portray reactions, and also its very low lighting and mm. use of shadows. I mean, strike and. Battleship Potemkin are predominantly filmed outside, Um, but this one was all inside the kind of... Well, most of it was all inside the kind of castle or palace. Yeah. And there were loads of shots of people sort of skulking around corners and you saw their shadows before you saw them. And I just thought that was really kind of telling of, oh, the boyars don't agree with him and they're going to be listing around every corner and you don't know who to trust... Um, I thought the cinematography showed that very well. And um, Eisenstein, is, he's really kind of glorified for his editing. Mm. And it, this film is edited very similar to 
a lot of his other films, lots of kind of quick cuts to show different people's reactions to one thing. It's almost like he didn't so much focus on the event, mm. but kind of everybody's reaction to that event. Although there was no montage in this film. There was no montage sequence. Mm. Um, I was kind of looking forward to one, actually, so <laughs> I could bring out my montage theory. But Alas, maybe in part two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I found the editing a, a little a little weird to be honest because quite often you'd have a scene like in the banquet hall. I noticed this in particular. They instead of like following the movement, it would it would kind of like cut in closer to like further down the table rather than the camera like tilting or panning, which is like more how I would traditionally see something like that being shot it was kind of like almost like like you blink your eyes and then you open them again and you've turned your head slightly so that was that was quite kind of like a jump cut yeah yeah but not not the way that jump cuts are often used no no there was one i noticed one pan and one tilt of the camera i think but i guess 1944 you're still using massive cameras where things to pan and tilt, you're going to need a massive track to move them. Yeah, yeah, it's so, harder to do. But it's also interesting because it's like it's almost letting the audience just be a fly on the wall, almost like it's it's kind of giving you the scene from a distance and letting you kind of just watch the action that's going on and then kind of throwing you into, oh no, this is what I want you to focus on. Hmm. So it's kind of, it is a bit jarring, I guess, because you're kind of feeling, as a viewer, you're kind of feeling safe, like, okay, let me kind of analyse this, what's going on over here, what's going on over there, and then suddenly you're, you've blinked, like Ali said, and you're in a completely different part, I guess, the part that Eisenstein wants you to see. But it does mean that you notice it a lot more, and I, I, I wonder whether that is one of the reasons, or one of quite a few reasons why I found it very difficult to just kind of get lost in the film. It mm. was always, I was always noticing stuff rather than like getting swept up with the characters. But I think part of that was, big part of that was just the acting style mm. because it was so melodramatic. I was never like, I believe these performances. Yeah. I mean, I thought Nikolai Cherkasov, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who played Ivan, I thought he was very commanding. I really liked what he was doing, but at the same time, it it did feel like hammy's the wrong word, but just not. It's very performancey. Mm. It's kind of that reminding you that this is a film. Yes, almost. It's kind of realistic to the point of I can understand what's going on and what these people went through, but I'm also I know that I'm watching a film. It's not so narrative in that way, I guess. Whereas, like the much more recent Ivan the terrible film Sal that we watched earlier on the podcast it's still a very big performance but it's just mm. a much more natural style I guess but maybe that's just that's part partly how that movie's shot as well it's much more shot the way you typically see you know mm. contemporary movie obviously because it's a much more recent film but um yeah but it is a it is an impressive performance in lots of ways like it's memorable (laughs) just like all these kind of like 
he does this thing where he tilts his head back and he like you know widens his eyes so you see a lot of the the whites of his eyes it's kind of it's quite scary because people don't do that in normal life it is it is very silent-esque very silent-esque it is kind of odd for it to be a narrative uh, to be a talkie sorry did you find it unintentionally funny um i guess with with our 2018 eyes I did. But I, again, I don't think if I was watching this in 1944, I don't think I would have. But then again, maybe some things are dramatic for comedic effect. Yeah, there's one thing I wanted to bring up in the context of things that were a little bit ridiculous. Quite early on, there was this one character who I think was a... He's like a deacon or something, wasn't he? Like a archbishop or... Yeah, he was in some kind of like council role. I think I wonder whether he was even meant to be like a foreign diplomat. But he had these very—I mean, I know they had glasses in some parts of the world, oh, in the early modern period, but they didn't have glasses that looked like that. These were kind of like these square-lensed glasses, but they had like these shades, and one of them was like perpetually like flipped up. So it was like one dark glass, and then one other like dark lens that's kind of like at an angle and he was doing all these sneaky things so he was just like he was really ridiculous something around it, they kind of look like something out of when they go to the future and back to the future mm. just something really odd i don't know at first i thought it was an eye patch yeah and then i realized hold on this is like some kind of glasses I'm not sure whether they had them in the 17th century, but no. But it just it just looked really weird and out of place, and kind of like took me out of there. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it particularly because he was like this shifty character. It's kind of like just in case you were wondering, this guy's shifty. You can tell by the weird shifty glasses. Funny. I'll have to like post a still of it on on like on the Facebook group just so you can see what I mean about this guy if you haven't seen the film. Also, I found the um, the Bayarana, who's the mother of Vladimir, like the potential like other person who could be on the throne. She very much reminded me of like a sort of character that Terry Jones would play in drag in one of the Monty Python films. <laughs> she, I just, I couldn't. I said to Ali halfway through the film, "Is that a man or a woman?" Because up until that point. I was trying to work it out, and I just couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it was a woman playing her, but just because she was wearing, like, the kind of headdress, like, almost like a nun's kind of wimple. You can't see any of her hair. You can't even see her ears. It's just this face. And she just has a... It's not a very strong resemblance, but it's a bit of a resemblance to Terry Jones, so... Yeah, so that I found that another one to take seriously, but maybe I should just grow up. I don't know. No, I think it was interesting. I think it's kind of that kind of pantomime villain almost. You want to know. It kind of matched the melodrama of all the other characters. Yeah. Her kind of shadiness being depicted so obviously in her dress and her eyes like moving around the room. And hiding in plain sight. There's this part in the movie just before she poisons Ivan's wife where she's just kind of stood in a corner and nobody sees her, even though she's definitely right there. Yeah. And then Ivan doesn't even think, ah, maybe this person's poisoned my wife. It just doesn't even cross his mind. And it's almost that kind of pantomime, shh, 
don't tell anyone I'm here, he's behind you kind of yeah. thing. Obviously, I'm not sure whether pantomime existed in 1944 Russia, but um, from, again, with our 2018 eyes, you can definitely see that kind of melodrama of the kind of typical bad guy. Yeah. Um, but kind of her character was very Lady Macbeth, I thought. Yeah. She was very much... I would probably, you know, she would be in, like, second billing or something. Mm. She, her kind of manipulation of all the kind of puppet strings was what kind of gave the film a really thick plot, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it wasn't for her character kind of um, pulling all these strings, then there would be a battle and they would have lost a battle and they would have won a battle. There wouldn't be any of this kind of background um, whispers of uh, oh who wants control and who who's going to back who and do the noble people you know root for Ivan and then yeah the yeah, whole yeah. ending of the film wouldn't really make sense with the kind of people coming behind him so she was actually a really prominent prominent character I thought but a very funny face nevertheless <laughs> yeah and it it did feel a bit like slightly sexist that like you know you've got two you know women in important roles in the film one of which is Anastasia the uh, Tsarina who kind of doesn't really do very much and then there's the Boyarina who's just evil scheming and manipulative and the fact that there are two it almost like Again, maybe I'm reading too much it, uh, into it. It almost feels like that, like the filmmakers are telling the audience, "You should be like this, and you should not be like this." Almost. I think it was interesting as well that one killed the other. Yeah, that's very telling. Of you should definitely be like this and not like this. However, that does end up getting you killed. <laughs> yeah. So you know. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I like looking at, especially in these old kind of films where women come into play. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily call myself a massive feminist, but I think it's very easy to kind of look at women in, in different films, and especially in world cinema. I find it really exciting just to see what they play and how they portray different things. Mm. And I think what you were saying about having these two really opposite roles, like one person just sits there and looks pretty and doesn't do much for the whole film, really, yeah. and the other one who's actually... Com- you know, she does a lot, but she does a lot on the wrong side. Yeah. It's just quite interesting looking at, you know, they're the two, the two roles that women were chosen to play. Yeah, yeah. Or get, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Would you recommend this film to other people, do you think? Definitely. I think uh, I was reading my book of 1001 films to watch before you die. Okay. And parts one and two were both in there. And they actually had a um, whole spread feature in this book. So I would yeah, definitely recommend it. I mean, it's. I think it's much easier to watch than Battleship uh, Potemkin. But I would also recommend you watch that. Yeah, I think, I think what Ali said kind of sums it up really i mean this film has so many political undertones of kind of both the director and stalin's kind of oversight of it but it's also really quite funny in its makeup and how it's put together like the melodramatic acting or the characters with really odd sort of 
features and I'm excited to watch part two. I think I'll be able to give a better recommendation once I've seen them both together. Yeah, yeah, sort of the two halves of the... Yeah. Hopefully it will make a greater whole. But then again, it was supposed to be three parts, so maybe it doesn't really make sense unless yeah, you see that's the true. whole that's true. thing, which isn't a possibility. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling. <laughs> but you hadn't seen this film before. No, no, I'd, I'd maybe seen like the odd clip. But yeah, I actually, I had heard lots of like dialogue clips because a few years ago, uh, Martin Sixsmith did his long radio series on the history of Russia and they talk quite a lot about this this movie. And so probably some of my opinions have been recycled from there, but they used lots of clips and then they had British actors like reading the lines but you'd hear the Russian lines mm, from this okay. film first so it was kind of quite weird watching it in that regard because I'd I'd go oh yeah I've heard that line before said in that way because yeah those audio clips were used and some of the music as well so yeah that's if you can find it that's definitely worth worth checking out it's really interesting that series uh what was it called it's, it was it was kind of a not the greatest title it was called like the wild east or something like that. But yes, it's good, I thought. So anyway. All right. <laughs> so thank you so much, Essie, for being a guest. If people want to get in touch, do you have, are you on social media in any way? that I am. I am on Facebook and Instagram. None of the kind of normal ones but you could always add me to the facebook group or i can yes. find it and then um people can find me through that that might be a bit easier cool yes i'll do that then so yes look in the show notes okay thanks again great and thanks very much for listening dust down your folks So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovic and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes, so if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media, please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves, and bye for now.
write a review, and then you can share it. With the world. In any social media platform. And then your friends see it, and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day, Podcast Review Day. And I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and CastBox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day. Which is on the 8th of every month, of every year, of every century, of every... You get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag Pod Rev Day, Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butt off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. Pod Rev Day. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag Pod Rev Day. P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y.